Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 12, Guns and Good Company Part 2 Then came the army. By a remarkable turn of fate, this did not mean removal from Oxford. I was drafted into a cadet battalion whose billet was Keeble. I passed through the ordinary course of training, a mild affair in those days compared with that of the recent war, and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Somerset Light Infantry, the old 13th foot. I arrived in the front-line trenches on my 19th birthday, November 1917, saw most of my service in the villages before Arras, Fampou and Monchy, and was wounded at Mount Bernencon, near Lillers, in April 1918. I am surprised that I did not dislike the army more. It was, of course, detestable. But the words, of course, drew the sting. That is where it differed from Wyvern. One did not expect to like it. Nobody said you ought to like it. Nobody pretended to like it. Everyone you met took it for granted that the whole thing was an odious necessity, a ghastly interruption of rational life. And that made all the difference. Straight tribulation is easier to bear than tribulation which advertises itself as pleasure. The one breeds camaraderie, and even, when intense, a kind of love between the fellow sufferers. The other, mutual distrust, cynicism, concealed and fretting resentment. And secondly, I found my military elders and betters incomparably nicer than the wyvern bloods. This is no doubt because 30 is naturally kinder to 19 than 19 is to 13. It is really grown up and does not need to reassure itself. But I am inclined to think that my face had altered. That look which I had so often been told to take off it had apparently taken itself off, perhaps when I read Fantasties. There is even some evidence that it had been succeeded by a look which excited either pity or kindly amusement. Thus, on my very first night in France, in a vast marquee or drill hall where about a hundred officers were to sleep on plank beds, two middle-aged Canadians at once took charge of me and treated me not like a son that might have given offense, but like a long-lost friend. Blessings upon them. Once, too, in the officers' club at Arras where I was dining alone, and quite happy with my book and my wine, a bottle of hide-seek then cost eight francs and a bottle of Perrier Jouet, twelve. Two immensely senior officers, all covered with ribbons and red tabs, came over to my table towards the end of the meal, and hailing me as Sonny Jim, carried me off to their own for brandy and cigars. They weren't drunk, either. Nor did they make me drunk. It was pure goodwill. And though exceptional, this was not so very exceptional. There were nasty people in the army, but memory fills those months with pleasant, transitory contacts. Every few days, one seemed to meet a scholar, an original, a poet, a cheery buffoon, a raconteur, or at the least, a man of goodwill. Sometime in the middle of that winter, I had the good luck to fall sick with what the troops called trench fever, and the doctors, P-U-O, pyrexia, unknown origin, and was sent for a wholly delightful three weeks to hospital at Le Trépot. Perhaps I ought to have mentioned before that I had a very weak chest ever since childhood, and had very early learned to make a minor illness one of the pleasures of life, even in peacetime. 
Now, as an alternative to the trenches, a bed and a book were very heaven. The hospital was a converted hotel, and we were two in a room. My first week was marred by the fact that one of the night nurses was conducting a furious love affair with my roommate. I had too high a temperature to be embarrassed, but the human whisper is a very tedious and unmusical noise, especially at night. After that, my fortune mended. The amorous man was sent elsewhere and replaced by a musical misogynist from Yorkshire, who on our second morning together said to me, "Eh, lad, if we make our beds ourselves, dom bees won't stay in room so long, or words to that effect. Accordingly, we made our own beds every day. And every day, when the two VADs looked in, they said, Oh, they've made their beds. Aren't these two good? And rewarded us with their brightest smiles. I think they attributed our action to gallantry. It was here that I first read a volume of Chesterton's essays. I had never heard of him and had no idea of what he stood for. Nor can I quite understand why he made such an immediate conquest of me. It might have been expected that my pessimism, my atheism, and my hatred of sentiment would have made him to me the least congenial of all authors. It would almost seem that providence, or some second cause of a very obscure kind, quite overrules our previous tastes when it decides to bring two minds together. Liking an author may be as involuntary and improbable as falling in love. I was by now a sufficiently experienced reader to distinguish liking from agreement. I did not need to accept what Chesterton said in order to enjoy it. His humor was of the kind which I liked best, not jokes embedded in the page like currants in a cake, still less what I cannot endure, a general tone of flippancy and jocularity, but the humor which is not in any way separable from the argument, but is rather, as Aristotle would say, the bloom on dialectic itself. The sword glitters not because the swordsman set out to make it glitter, but because he is fighting for his life, and therefore moving it very quickly. For the critics who think Chesterton frivolous or paradoxical, I have to work hard to feel even pity. Sympathy is out of the question. Moreover, strange as it may seem, I liked him for his goodness. I can attribute this taste to myself freely, even at that age, because it was a liking for goodness which had nothing to do with any attempt to be good myself. I have never felt the dislike of goodness which seems to be quite common in better men than me. Smug and smugness were terms of disapprobation which had never had a place in my critical vocabulary. I lacked the cynic's nose, the odor canum vis, or bloodhound sensitivity for hypocrisy or pharisaism. It was a matter of taste. I felt the charm of goodness as a man feels the charm of a woman he has no intention of marrying. It is, indeed, at that distance that its charm is most apparent. In reading Chesterton, as in reading MacDonald, I did not know what I was letting myself in for. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful in his reading. There are traps everywhere. Bibles laid open. Millions of surprises, as Herbert says. Fine nets and stratagems. God is, if I may say it, very unscrupulous. In my own battalion also I was assailed. Here I met one Johnson, on whom be peace, who would have been a lifelong friend if he had not been killed. He was, like me, already a scholar of an Oxford college, Queen's, who hoped to take up his scholarship after the war, but a few years my senior and at that time in command of a company. In him I found dialectical sharpness, such as I had hitherto known only in Kirk, but coupled with youth and whim and poetry. 
he was moving towards theism, and we had endless arguments on that and every other topic whenever we were out of the line. But it was not this that mattered. The important thing was that he was a man of conscience. I had hardly till now encountered principles in anyone so nearly of my own age and my own sort. The alarming thing was that he took them for granted. It crossed my mind for the first time since my apostasy that the severer virtues might have some relevance to one's own life. I say the severer virtues because I already had some notion of kindness and faithfulness to friends and generosity about money, as who has not till he meets the temptation as who has not, till he meets the temptation which gives all their opposite vices new and more civil names? But it had not seriously occurred to me that people like ourselves, people like Johnson and me, who wanted to know whether beauty was objective, or how Aeschylus handled the reconciliation of Zeus and Prometheus, should be attempting strict veracity, chastity, or devotion to duty. I had taken it that they were not our subjects, there was no discussion between us on the point, and I do not think he ever suspected the truth about me. I was at no pains to display it. If this is hypocrisy, then I must conclude that hypocrisy can do a man good. To be ashamed of what you were about to say, to pretend that something which you had meant seriously was only a joke, this is an ignoble part. But it is better than not to be ashamed at all. And the distinction between pretending you are better than you are and beginning to be better in reality, is finer than moral sleuth-hounds conceive. I was, in intention, concealing only a part. I accepted his principles at once, made no attempt internally to defend my own unexamined life. When a boar first enters the society of courteous people, what can he do for a while except imitate the motions? How can he learn except by imitation? You will have divined that ours was a very nice battalion. A minority of good regulars ruling a pleasantly mixed population of promoted rankers, West Country farmers, these, barristers and university men. You could get as good talk there as anywhere. Perhaps the best of us all was our butt, Wally. Wally was a farmer, a Roman Catholic, a passionate soldier, the only man I met who really longed for fighting and gullible to any degree by the rawest subaltern. The technique was to criticize the yeomanry. Poor Wally knew that it was the bravest, the most efficient, the hardest and cleanest corps that ever sat on horses. He knew all that inside, having learned it from an uncle in the yeomanry when he was a child. But he could not get it out. He stammered and contradicted himself and always came at last to his trump card. I wish my Uncle Ben was here to talk to you. Uncle Ben talked to you, he'd tell you. Mortals must not judge. But I doubt whether any man fought in France who was more likely to go straight to heaven if he were killed. I would have been better employed cleaning his boots than laughing at him. I may add that I did not enjoy the short time I spent in the company he commanded. Wally had a genuine passion for killing Germans, and a complete disregard of his own or anyone else's safety. He was always striking out bright ideas at which the hair of us subalterns stood on end. Luckily, he could be very easily dissuaded by any plausible argument that occurred to us. Such was his valor and innocence that he never for a moment suspected us of any but a military motive. He could never grasp the neighborly principle which, by the tacit agreement of the troops, were held to govern trench warfare, and to which I was introduced at once by my sergeant. I had suggested 
pooping a rifle grenade into a German post where we had seen heads moving. Just as he likes, sir, said the sergeant, scratching his head. But once he starts doing that kind of thing, he'll get Zummit back, see? I must not paint the wartime army all gold. I met there both the world and the great goddess nonsense. The world presented itself in a very ridiculous form on that night, my 19th birthday, when I first arrived up the line. As I emerged from the shaft into the dugout and blinked in the candlelight, I noticed that the captain to whom I was reporting was a master whom I had liked more than I had respected at one of my schools. I ventured to claim acquaintance. He admitted in a low, hurried voice that he had once been a schoolmaster, and the topic was never raised between us again. The impact of the great goddess was even funnier, and I met it long before I reached my own battalion. The troop train from Rouen, that interminable twelve-mile-an-hour train in which no two coaches were alike, left at about ten in the evening. Three other officers and I were allotted a compartment. There was no heating. For light we brought out our own candles. For sanitation there were the windows. The journey would last about fifteen hours. It was freezing hard. In the tunnel just outside Rouen, all my generation remember it, there was a sudden wrenching and grating noise, and one of our doors dropped off bodily into the dark. We sat with chattering teeth till the next stop, where the officer commanding the train came bustling up and demanded what we had done with our door. Came off, sir, said we. Don't talk nonsense, said he. It wouldn't have come off if there hadn't been some horseplay. As if nothing were more natural than that four officers, being, of course, provided with screwdrivers, should begin a night journey in midwinter by removing the door of their carriage. The war itself has been so often described by those who saw more of it than I that I shall say here very little about it. Until the great German attack came in the spring, we had a pretty quiet time. Even then, they attacked not us, but the Canadians on our right, merely keeping us quiet by pouring shells into our line about three a minute all day. I think it was that day I noticed how a greater terror overcomes a less. A mouse that I met, and a poor shivering mouse it was, as I was a poor shivering man, made no attempt to run from me. Through the winter, weariness and water were our chief enemies. I have gone to sleep marching and woken again and found myself marching still. One walked in the trenches in thigh-gum boots, with water above the knee. One remembers the icy stream welling up inside the boot when you punctured it on concealed barbed wire. Familiarity, both with the very old and the very recent dead, confirmed that view of corpses which had been formed the moment I saw my dead mother. I came to know and pity and reverence the ordinary man, particularly dear Sergeant Ayres, who was, I suppose, killed by the same shell that wounded me. I was a futile officer. They gave commissions too easily then. A puppet moved about by him, and he turned this ridiculous and painful relation into something beautiful. Became to me almost like a father. But for the rest, the war. The frights, the cold, the smell of H.E., the horribly smashed men still moving like half-crushed beetles, the sitting or standing corpses, the landscape of sheer earth without a blade of grass, the boots worn day and night till they seem to grow to your feet. All this shows rarely and faintly in memory. It is too cut off from the rest of my experience, and often seems to have happened to someone else. It is, even in a way, unimportant. One imaginative moment seems now to matter more than the realities that followed. It was the first bullet I heard. 
so far from me that it whined, like a journalist's or a peacetime poet's bullet. At that moment, there was something not exactly like fear, much less like indifference, a little quavering signal that said, This is war. This is what Homer wrote about. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.